0: Hi, this is Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Today, the interview is with Chip Sullivan, Cartooning the Landscape, published by University of Virginia Press in 2016. Hi, Chip. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I I can't tell you how excited I am uh, to be here and especially uh, kind of sending my voice to Florida where I spent so many formative years in my education and practice. And uh, it's really great to be, um, you know, somewhat connected back with uh, South Florida. Um, So it's kind of exciting.
0: Well, then you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How are you from Florida?
1: Well, it's kind of a circuitous story, but um, I guess start from the beginning, uh, my father, mother, and grandfather were artists, and I used to always sit in my dad's lap and watch, watch him draw the characters for Walt Disney's animations. And I kind of grew up sort of thinking of, thinking that I would be a animator at Disney or a cartoonist, because I was always drawing the Sunday comics and always sort of like trying to uh, you know, press my dad or following his footsteps because he always talked about uh, the two years when he was at Sacramento Junior College studying graphic design. So in the back of my mind, that is kind of where I wanted to go in with my education. And when it came time for me to go to school, um, you know I picked uh, surprisingly, the University of Florida because, one, they had a really good golf team, and I was wanting to play on the golf team, if you can believe that. <laughs> But what was cool is the, um, the graphic design program at the University of Florida was in the College of the Fine Arts. And when I was looking through the catalog, I came across landscape architecture. And uh, when I looked at all of the sort of the, the different courses one would be taking, I got really excited because so many of them were drawing. And uh, uh, I love to draw and it seemed like landscape architecture really kind of included this element of art and also ecology, because this was during the time of environmental awareness and uh, Earth Day and all those things. And it kind of when I came across landscape architecture, it really combined all of my interests in a really sort of an exciting, you know, an exciting cross section of things. And uh, while it was in the, I don't think the program is still in the College of Fine, Fine Arts, but what was really exciting about it for me is you could walk upstairs and go to the graphic design department. You know, I took classes in printmaking and landscape painting. So, there, so I was able to kind of keep one foot in my sort of like artistic uh, desires and also kind of like also fulfill my landscape architectural uh, kind of knowledge. But... I also realized too, you know, like how important your professors are because there was some point where I had really, you know, kind of like really gotten bitten by the landscape architectural bug. And I really felt like it was a certain sort of set of kind of constraints. And I remember my professor, Eric Smith, was pinning up a, a poster of one of the former students who had graduated from the program and he was doing a show of his landscape paintings. And I told Eric, I go, well, that's not, that's not landscape architecture. And he goes, why, yes, it is. That is exactly landscape architecture. And that one sort of sentence kind of really kind of changed my whole attitude of what landscape architecture is, that it is this big, all-encompassing thing, and that art is a part and part of it. And landscape architecture can be an art form, you know, but also at the same time, these are ecolo- paintings of ecologically sensitive areas in Florida. And the, Harry Stowers, the painter, was trying to educate the public into kind of the sensitive sensitive ecotones and ecosystems that were being kind of bulldozed and filled in. So that kind of like really reinforced my idea that I should really kind of keep advancing, uh, the art that I was, that the art, the artwork that I was doing, I should really kind of kind of keep developing that and kind of integrate it into my, my education. But in college, and I tell my students this all the time, is we always have one or two books that change our lives forever and for me, there were two books, like one was Carlos Castaneda's Teachings of Don Juan, and the other one was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And what happened to me after I after I graduated, um, while I was in school, there was uh, kind of the first energy crisis, and I was very much interested in um, kind of looking at how landscape architecture can reduce our dependency on foreign oil. And I was... Uh, looking at different different landforms. And I had seen that the Anasazi Indians had kind of developed this form of landscape that was oriented to the, to the sun and it was warm in the wintertime and cool in the summertime. So like what I did is my dad gave me his Lincoln Continental and I spent five months in the American Southwest. Two things, one, looking for a wise mentor uh, from Carlos Casanita's book on the teachings of Don Juan. I was really looking for Someone to teach me this ancient ancient wisdom of the landscape, and also I was looking for looking and studying the Anasazi architecture to kind of kind of build a catalog of design. So anyway, I spent five months out there. Needless to say, I never found uh, a wise mentor, you know, to teach me this knowledge. But I came back with thousands of drawings of ideas from uh, the Anasazi. But I came back, and again, you know, there were all of these um, kind of recessions when I was in school. And the only place I could find uh, a place to work at that time was with the Sasaki Associates in Coral Gables, and they had opened up a small, like, two-, three-man office in Coral Gables. And, and uh, I took the position, and, and uh, you know, I guess about a year went by, and i totally forgotten about this, this experience. And um, so one day um, at lunchtime, of escaped out early, you know, before all the kind of lunchtime plans were being made. And I was walking down Kylie Ocho, which was 8th Street, which at that time wasn't the nicest neighborhood in, in like it is now, but I was walking by, um, what I thought was a bookstore and I stopped and went in and it was very, very dark. And I was looking around and, um, this little man came around the corner and he handed me a book and he said, uh, read this. And when you're done reading it, come back and we'll talk about it. And uh, what I didn't realize—I mean, this is so Zen, isn't it? Once you once you give up, you spend that time looking for a mentor, and then you give up and you find one. They say when a when a student is ready, a teacher will appear. And um, you know, it, it's 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 odd that it, when I least expected it, and this mentor uh, student apprenticeship kind of thing went on for you know like three or four years he helped me put together my portfolio to win the rome prize but anyway it kind of like also led me to these different kind of like books of ideology and consciousness and just really expanded my horizons in just an incredible incredible way in some ways uh cartooning landscape is a sort of a a tribute to him and um you know the 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 idea is that um you know when you kind of Drawing can be a form of consciousness, you know, and th- the way the book is set up is that there are six comic books within the book. And I changed the kind of context of the book from a, a kind of a bookstore to a comic book store. And the idea is that in, in, the, in the book that when, um, you know, like the, the comic that is given to the student He reads it and comes back and then they have this intellectual discussion. So embedded within the six comics within cartooning the landscape are sort of these significant kind of, uh, secret methods that have to be interpreted and discussed. And the book is basically kind of this idea of the search of the drawing as a way of seeing drawing as a way of grasping consciousness that it has this higher kind of higher plane of uh, knowledge. But the other reason of the book that I, that I want to do, because I really love landscape architecture, is also to kind of broaden the scope or broaden the audience for landscape architecture. As a, This is really sort of the first graphic novel of landscape architecture. And I wanted to kind of create something that could, could, could go, go outside of the field and kind of introduce people students in seventh and eighth grade, high school students that might wanna read graphic novels, but it kind of introduce them to what landscape architecture is or what it can be. And you can see in the book that it's multifaceted, all of these different directions that, can, that it, can, it can go in. So that's kind of the sort of the context of the book. And then there's a secret reveal. And one of the things I realized years later is that I remember uh, the owner, uh, his name was um, Albert Ladoux. Uh, somebody said, well, you know, those are all his books. And what I realized, you know, I walked into not what was a bookstore, but this was really his library, you know, that these were all his books, you know, they're all annotated and stuff. And, uh, you know, like this kind of like really interesting kind of back and forth kind of Plato, Socrates kind of peripatetic kind of discussion was really, really exciting. So that, that forms the sort of the construction of the book that, that I wanted it to be. And it also has a, a third layer in that there's the mentor and protege, but then there's also the stories being told to um, one of the, 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 prof- the student who becomes a professor, stories being told to his teaching assistant, graduate assistant, and kind of the ideas at the end of the book, she goes off and will go off and kind of like repeat this or transfer this body of knowledge to the next generation of people coming on. So the idea is that you know, like you read this, but also you want to, when they say, when a teacher is ready, students will appear. So it's the idea that this this kind of exchange of knowledge and transcendental consciousness will kind of go on. But I really feel landscape architecture is a real conduit for that. It's one of the important things about the field that I think is uh, uh, really uh, important. And this kind of set up this... This, this book was a long time coming and it kind of developed it, This experience kind of led me to win the Rome prize and I kind of went off to write Garden and Climate and drawing the landscape. And then it sort of happened because while I was giving lectures at uh, Colorado State University, Paul Helpland uh, wrote me a letter and said that he was, he was trying to put together a book on about landscape architects and what influenced them as children to become landscape architects. And I thought this was a brilliant idea and it's still a brilliant idea uh, because he said there were books that artists had written you know, that told other young children what they did as children to turn them onto art and writers and poets. So there was a series of books. He wanted to do one about landscape architects. So I wrote up um, my first comic, which I, I penciled it out, which was because when I was growing up, um, they had done a study of architects and landscape architects and asked them, what toys did they play with as kids? Of course, I grew up with model trains and that influenced me to go in landscape architecture. And they said, architects grew up uh, playing with erector sets. And granted the gender balance was much different back in those days, but it made me think about like how important it was Kind of this idea of imagination and, and kind of like dreaming and, and thinking about how landscapes would work with model trains so i wrote this thing called landscape imagineer and unfortunately like two or three years went by and nothing happened and i you know like i said paul what you know what's going on you know I says well i, can, I actually can't get anybody to kind of write so it's, it's i was really excited about what i had done so i decided you know i'll just send it off the landscape architecture magazine i'll send it off to bill thompson and see what he says he wrote back immediately and said, "Like, ink it up and we'll print it," and I was blown away. So, I mean, this really was like one of my desires was always, as a kid, was to be, you know, like a cartoonist or a graphic novel novelist. So, like, and and the series, this this cartoon was so popular that uh, he asked me to do more, and we went on. I think for like six years, we did a series called Creative Thinking, which was a series of these three-page kind of. Um, uh, stories that talked about um, landscape architecture, and it, they all had these hidden messages about scene and consciousness and what landscape architecture can mean and stuff. and this went on for like maybe it could have been four to six years. I can't remember exactly what it was. so i and my goal had always been to say, you know if this goes well, maybe I can collect these together into a graphic novel at some point. and then luckily, three years after this, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, Boyd uh, from University of Virginia Press contacted me and she had seen some of these strips and wanted to know if I wanted to do uh, a book with them. And I go, hell yeah, let's do it. You know, so they were, University of Virginia Press was really supportive and excited. And what I thought, I had 78 pages. I thought, oh, I can crank this out, no no time at all. But it took about three years to take a sabbatical. And generally a cartoonist, a graphic novelist can do uh, one page a day. Uh, and I remember saying, "Well, she, they, she said, Boyd said, how long do you think it'll take you to do the book?" And I said, "Well, you know, it takes a takes about a day to do a page, and you know, like page to pencil, page to ink it." And she thought for a moment. She says, "Well, you know, that'll take you four years." So I really kind of had to streamline my process when I, you know, I said, a page a day doesn't sound like much, but when you add it up and kind of figure it out to two hundred fifty pages, it can uh, kind of spread out. So that's kind of how it, how it came together. Um, and you know, like I was drawing maybe 10 to 12 hours a day, but it, it was really, you probably experienced this when you get into the process, uh, before, you know, it, time has dissipated and, you know, like it, all of a sudden it's four in the morning, you know, like, so part of this whole process was really going inside of the novel and becoming, uh, a part of it and kind of going across that, you know, border between, reality and kind of consciousness and kind of that, that border between the known and the unknown. And um, it was really uh, a wonderful space to be in for all those years. And I remember like when I stopped drawing, it was kind of like wa- cold water being thrown on me. You know, like when I would stopped drawing and come downstairs to go like, I was, you know, like, where am I? Um, so I think I really was able to go through that portal. Um, and I'm pretty pleased with the way it came out.
0: Oh yes, you know I wish this was uh, even a visual medium and instead of just a podcast. We'll just have to kind of describe it. This this book is pretty amazing. I mean, the drawings in here, it's just it's just chock, chock full of um, hints and tips and uh, and sketches and drawings. Um, but we'll just have to we'll just have to describe it to our audience. Um, I, that was interesting you said about uh, trains and uh, when I read that. Uh, that's what we used to do at Christmas. Uh, my dad had a train set, and uh, with my dad, and my brother, and, and my mom too. Some, but we would always set up the train set around the living room.
1: Yeah, we. That's you know, like you know, I look back on it. I grew up with trains. We, you know, I think, my grandfather bought me my first train set when I was uh, my first birthday. You know, my first Christmas. Uh, I've had trains my whole life. As a matter of fact, I, at one time, had the largest train set in Berkeley. You know, like when we built this loft, I designed it too. I have, uh, have be able to set up the trains that I grew grew up with. And now, now I have the second, second largest train in Berkeley. Some uh, entrepreneur bought a huge warehouse down here and, you know, filled the whole place with this train set. So unfortunately I can no longer claim that. But um, there's something about the scale of uh, trains that, um, you know, this idea of imagination, you know, you have the, the train tracks, but then you have to imagine the landscape and this whole idea of planning and thinking ahead and, you know the uh, the modularity of, of uh, model trains, but it can be, uh, you know. I th- I think it's a you know it's a shame it's kind of disappeared from our our kind of our contemporary children's uh, childhood. But I you know it, it was a really great great learning tool for me.
0: So, so I'm going to um, throw you a, a, an sure. off the wall question, and uh, because I, you've got there's so many different things here I could ask you about, but uh, you're talking about Van Gogh uh, in one section and about the great artists and you, you drew their, uh, their faces into landscapes, et cetera. So if Van Gogh taught a landscape architecture studio, what kind of studio?
1: That is a really cool question. Uh, I think for one thing, he would have his students out in the field. Uh, One thing I learned Uh, We took a class to Arles and to follow in the footsteps of Van Gogh. And we were there during one of the mistrals, which is the really violent winds that kind of come down from the north for, you know, three or four days to a week. And Van Gogh talks about having to kind of hammer his easel down into the landscape, you know, to keep, keep his paintings from blowing away. And one of the things that I was really impressed about that landscape is how Van Gogh really went out into nature and painted the landscape. And also when we look at sort of like marks on the landscape, I actually have my students look at some of his paintings. They're just dots, uh, stipples, and wiggly, wiggly lines and dashed lines. He could put it to put those things together. And one of the things I really like about Van Gogh is I think more than many other artists, he really could, he really saw the landscape. And his paintings are not just the physical aspects of the landscape, but he's showing the sort of the whole hidden process of nature the landscape is growing you know like some of his some of his paintings even show sort of the atmospheric effects you know you can feel the plants growing out of the landscape so i think probably more than any other artist van gogh was a real part of the landscape and it's not just the sunny day you know he just wasn't the weekend painter that would go out when oh that's a perfect day i'll go out and sit he'd paint in the rain the wind uh you know like the he'd paint at nighttime. he would actually on his uh, straw hat, he would he would kind of put a candle on the top of his hat so he could go out and paint at night. And we went out to some of the places where he painted the starry nights, you know. And it, that was that's really difficult to do that to be able to paint at night. So not only you know, it's, he's just not a, a you know like a fair weather painter. He he really I think was the landscape. And you talk about the other thing that I think is really important about Van Gogh is that he, his passion you know, that, that it just, and, and the other thing I think is important about Van Gogh is he couldn't draw. He taught, he forced himself to draw, you know, he, for he, he was out there, he forced himself, you know, and he, he, he never really fully understood perspective. And the other thing too, you talk about the starving artist. I think there's one quote in there where he's writing his brother. He says, well, you know, I've been up for three or four days. I have no money, but I've, I've drank like 97 cups of coffee, you know, like, I mean, you know, like, and, but I know, I mean, I've, I've produced like 35 paintings and uh, you know, and he would do paintings of his paintings, you know, like, and he would do the studies and, you know, also that landscape he's painting uh, you know, like had these kind of deep road roots that go back pre Roman and pre history. And so there was a, you know, like the, the early kind of prehistorical kind of nature pantheistic nature worship that was uh, that you could see in the graveyard paintings that he did, Um, you know, so, I mean, I just, uh, and, you know, he just forced himself to, to be a great artist and he, you know, like he believed in himself and he was severely criticized, you know, like he, he developed his own style outside of the other styles of the time. So I think the applications there, uh, for a studio is to to develop your own style, you know, like come from what comes from inside of you, you know, like that's, you know, like don't do what everybody else is doing. You know, if everybody, they're all black. Line drawings with light, light white lines. You know, like what motivates you? What's coming from the inside? And uh, that's that's. I think uh, taking a studio with him would be great. It would be mayhem, right? Uh, probably be crazy. You know, like maybe people get their ears sliced off. But um, there'd be plenty of absinthe to drink. Probably.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be it, it, incredibly yeah, I creative.
1: So. I, I, that's a good idea. I might think about that. Maybe I'll come in one day dressed up like Van Gogh and see what.
0: Doing. <laughs> that would be funny. So, um, how can I become a landscape engineer? Good
1: question. Uh, do you mean a lands? Do you mean like where you're engineering? Do you mean like a tr- uh, landscape imagineer?
0: Imagineer. I'm sorry. That's what i meant well, to, like try for to say. Well, I
1: think the, one of the things about that cartoon. Is that it's the idea of getting small, Uh, and that's what I sort of what I was trying to write that particular cartoon from the point of view of you're imagining yourself in the train, but you're you all of a sudden you're driving the train. You're you're in that landscape. You're walking around the streets that you've set up. So it's that idea of kind of like uh, uh, you're you 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 get you've gotten small. So like you're in the landscape, you know, like you, you become that size scale and you can actually walk around It's sort of a form of digital imagination, I guess, or virtual reality that you, you know, but you're using instead of virtual reality, you're using your, your mind to get small and actually be able to walk through your landscapes without sort of like any sort of like, uh, kind of, uh, kind of crutches or anything. And I think that's part of it. So you're actually looking at how the landscape how the landscape looks, and you're also using like a steam locomotive or whatever means of transportation. That's you just train just whistle just blew. That's great. Um, that's a real train. Um, that, that you're inside the locomotive, you're inside the vehicles, and you're actually moving through the landscape and watching it from a multiplicity of views. And it's not just something that you're looking at as a as a large person looking down at a miniature railroad. You are a miniature. You are inside of it. So I think it's kind of like this idea of uh, sympathy with the landscape, you know, like you have a sympathetic uh, interactive relationship with it and you're the same size as the landscape. You're inside the landscape and you're using your imagination to imagine what can be. Because uh, I remember like looking at these train books and they would have these beautiful kind of uh, drawings of large scale trains that you would never have, but you would look at them and imagine yourself in the in the town walking around or you're kind of expanding it out like, well, what could be? So it's a, it's a kind of a way of like uh, developing a planning sensibility, looking into the, being able to look into the future and plan ahead. Cause that's, you never have everything you need to make your train set, the, you know, the way you want it. You're always dreaming ahead of how it could be. So you kind of have to plan for it to grow and expand, which I think is a good metaphor for uh, kind of physical planning. Wow.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can see that, you know, it just, it helps, uh, 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 even adults to spark, you know, go back to, like you said, you're, you're always a kid go back and, uh, and play with the, some of those. And, and recapture I, mean, I think some that's, of that that's imagination. something
1: that we all should think about is like, what toys did we play with as children that kind of affected the careers that we, we chose? I mean, I'm kind of interested in that. Like what, what do to today's children look at, you know, was it, is it, uh, kind of like video games or is it, um, you know, like the, uh, the little blocks that you put things together that, um, you know, like, what, what are the, what are the toys that you have that you grew up with that kind of affected your kind of conception of space is a topic that I think is kind of interesting to, to think about. Um, what do
0: you mean by, well, uh, for conception instance, of space? uh,
1: one of the things I'm curious about, like what kind of the kids that are growing up playing video games, that's their conception of space. My conception of space comes from a, th- a real three-dimensional kind of model landscape. So uh, the conception of space that comes from perhaps Legos is a little more physical representation of space. Most of my students grew up with playing with Legos. But say, for instance, uh, how will video games, the, the conception of that space, affect the space that we're designing now, will it mean that they can easily slip right into virtual rea- design by virtual reality, or will it be constrictive? So that's kind of what I mean, the, the kind of like the, how does that affect our perceptions of space?
0: Oh, uh, that's true. I guess um, I still had Legos and um, uh, the Lincoln Logs. We still spend a lot of time outside.
1: Yeah, those were great.
0: <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> you know, I think that's what's fun about this book is that it's just—it's just such a fun like book. It's not like uh, fun is not a chore. It's just—it's um, just—it's just being able to do all kinds of different creative things uh, together. And you know, I—I I don't know why I'm intrigued by this page. It, it's kind of cute. Um, can you tell us more about how I could be a? Like how can I join oh, the landscape that's, detective uh, society? Just,
1: that's no problem. I mean, for one thing, uh, the landscape detective society the is, is something that you do when you you're like you're you're out in the landscape and you're observing and recording, and you have these kind of tools that will help you You have your 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 official sketchbook and you have your guidebook and you're you're constantly looking at the landscape and learning from the landscape. And I kind of wanted to make it Kind of a play on the you know the old comic books where you could join uh you know the, the protector group or whatever you know or, or join stan lee's um you know fantastic four uh um, journeyman group so that you kind of like have this thing where it's kind of like almost not really a secret society but there are kind of secret codes and secret books and you're you're kind of like a member of a kind of an underground group where you're secretly kind of drawing the landscape and looking at it, you know, as, as things become more and more complex and um, you know, like uh, you can, you can become a, a, become a member with, without any problems, just send in 997 and you'll get your, you get your badge. But I always liked those things as a kid, you know, in the comic books where you got a badge and a secret belt and stuff. And I, I've been wanting to design, have my students cause they, they show up with their critiques. They don't have any pins. They don't have any tape. So I've been wanting to do like a Batman belt where they have the roll of tape and everything they need that they can carry with you. So it's also that that you're you're traveling with all of the things that you need all the time.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. That's cute. Yeah, you've got your little case of. Uh, you're going out to a project, yeah, or you're coming yeah. in. And you, gotta have, cool you gotta have you gotta have all your little tools.
1: <laughs> yes, you gotta have a, and password, we have to have a and password, password and a magic to too. pin. Uh, something I think is really cool. So you can all talk in code.
0: <laughs> we can all, we all talk in code. Um, now you did say that you spent time in Miami. Um, did you travel to Vizcaya and Fairchild Gardens? Oh, and how was, did that influence yeah, I mean, your career?
1: There are two things in that are really book. important about that because when I was in Miami was exactly when I was starting to develop the ideas for garden and climate on how we can use the vocabulary of landscape architecture to kind of create passive microclimates. So I was really looking into kind of how can we use landscape architecture to make comfortable environments and you know lessen our reliance on artificial uh, microclimates like air conditioning and everything. Like how can we how can we do that? And so I was really interested in looking at you know, landscapes and architecture that was done before we had all this kind of like. Uh, like free energy or cheap energy to make air-conditioned interior environments so um, one of the things odd things that happened is when i was working at Sasaki i never learned watercolor how to paint watercolor when i was in college but i remember there was several of the people in the office said chip will you take us out on the weekend and uh, teach us how to watercolor and this is the typical masculine response you know not not kind of like acknowledging that i had no idea how to watercolor I just said sure, yeah, I'll teach you guys how to watercolor. Yeah, and they go, let's do it next. Su- let's go out next Sunday. So I went, holy cow, I'm going to have to learn how to talk about trial by fire, you know, in the cauldron. So I quickly had to st- go all the magazine stores and art stores and look at how to watercolor. So uh, we started going out on the weekends to watercolor. But one of the cool things that happened. And I don't know if it's still true in Miami, but we were able to get a year's membership at Villa Vizcaya and a year's membership at uh, Fairchild Tropical Gardens. So what we would do is we'd alternate back and forth between one weekend would be Fairchild and the other weekend would be um, uh, Villa Vizcaya. And, of course, we'd go have breakfast first, and then we'd go and draw, and I'd, I'd show them how to watercolor. The, the wonderful part of this was I really got to, like, draw and look at how these different microclimates worked. And it, it kind of happened second nature because I'd find myself migrating to more comfortable spaces to be in. And then I started to watercolor those spaces. And then I started to and well, why is this space working? You know, there was the kind of the grotto at the sky that also had water misting down the sides of the walls. And I'd noticed, well, this is like 15 degrees cooler than the outside you know, or the arbors, the elevated arbors that were next to the water to catch the cool breezes or the Venturi effect with small little openings facing the prevailing breezes that would open space, you know, just even the, the alleys of trees and Fairchild tropical gardens that would catch capture the prevailing breezes and funnel them through these small spaces and increase the air velocity. And there are just like hundreds of these things. And that kind of, that kind of experience of drawing myself into the landscape, uh, is really kind of set the foundations for uh, garden and climate and this whole idea of also developing my ability to draw uh, and watercolor. But the other thing too is you'll see in, in cartooning the landscape. I kind of make there's there's some tributes to uh, Villa Vizcaya and and uh, Fairchild in that uh, the uh, the the mentor is telling the the student that uh, you know you don't have to travel you know to Europe or like to Asia or Japan to see these great gardens they are perfect examples of gardens here in our own kind of like community that you can learn from. And he goes on to say that, uh, and I think this is something i learned in my research that at one time there was this kind of secret society of garden designers that would design gardens that weren't just gardens for flowers, but they were also for travelers of the path that the garden also has a hidden meaning. Uh, For people that are sort of elevated in consciousness, or that they're looking, you know, like, or the garden is transferring these kind of like, like immortal, you know, lifetime lessons, or these kind of like, you know, like cosmic messages within the landscape. So that was something else I learned from Albert in his bookstores that, you know, that everything is kind of right here if you just know where to look for it. But it just it's very fortuitous that living in Coral Gables, two of the most magnificent gardens in the world just happened to be there, but they were, I, I find the garden for me is a lifetime learning encyclopedia. I'm still learning from the landscape, you know, still learning from gardens. Every time I go into one, there are gardens I've been visiting in Italy for 20 years. And every time I go back, I learn something new. So, um, I think the, that, that experience in just, you know, the Villa Viscaia and, and, uh, And and just even in our office was in Coral Gables, um, just looking at the Hispano-Moorish trellises and arbors and pergolas and gates and all the sort of things that are kind of spread out through that town are wonderful sort of examples of passive microclimates. And those are places where in the summertime I would go out and uh, because I was going home uh, while I was working, I was going home at 630 uh, taking a nap, getting up and making a pot of coffee, and then kind of working on these ideas till like three or four in the morning. So, when I was working in the office at lunchtime, I'd get really, really sleepy and I'd find myself sneaking out and finding comfortable places to sleep, <laughs> taking a nap. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, this is where I first came across the idea of the Venturi effect. You know, not too far from the office was this at one of the entrances in the Coral Gables, was this pergola car- car- covered arbor that had a wall. It was a little some three-sided enclosure, but it had this small little opening facing the prevailing breezes, and it had a built-in bench, uh, and I'd lay down on the bench because the bench was thick, thick, you know, like stucco, so it stayed really cool in the summertime, and I noticed that through this little opening, these prevailing breezes were blowing this nice cool air under the shade, and I could take a nice 35-minute map, and that, that's kind of when I slowly realized, well, that's the Venturi effect. You know, that's where you place a small opening in the direction of the prevailing freezes and it'll pick up the wind velocity. So, you know, this was like right there in front of me. And, uh, you know, so I found that as a important, you know, like important learning tools were everywhere in in that, that era of design, which all these things were built before the era of air conditioning. So they had to function uh, as, as kind of like passive microclimates.
0: Oh yes, that's true. That's uh, because uh, even down here in the Keys, the older houses in Key West and such, uh, the landscapes uh, and houses were built, yeah, to capture that cooler air breeze and how they had to kind of be more responsive to the landscape.
1: Yeah, they had high ceilings and, and broad porches and, you know, they were elevated off the ground maybe a couple of feet so that a lot of the classic Florida houses had vents in the floor so the air that was coming in under the ground, on you know, under the house was cooler. And it would come up, and there'd be like ceiling fans and then an exhaust fan up in the ceiling to pull that air through, so you'd have circulating air um, and kind of kind of develop natural ventilation when the when the cool breezes weren't blowing.
0: Well, that's funny you mentioned you like to catnap. I I believe in doing little catnaps in the afternoon, and uh, I did. I found it fascinating your book you were talking about too about um, oh, where was it? Uh, how to integrate your dreams into your design process. And uh, that's, that's not. I new. think but can you talk about it
1: oh yeah yeah i mean you got sorry to jump in there i got really excited because i i I think dreams are really really important and uh, one of the things that i i found when i started to look into dreams because i've been writing my dreams down as as long as i can remember and i remember uh listening uh somehow i just happened to turn on npr halfway halfway through this program and it was a woman who uh had a had a job because she was a struggling writer and she would be uh she had like a a service where she would pick up famous writers at the airport and drive them to their speaking engagements and she was really intimidated as a young writer aspiring writer writer with these famous writers and then she decided well like maybe the way to break the art is i'll ask them if they use dreams in in any of their writing processes Do, do the dreams help them out And uh, she said, invariably, almost every one of them, you know, couldn't shut up when they started talking about how dreams affect how they use dreams in their work. So that kind of got me really excited about, well, do landscape architects use uh, dreams in their work and how what artists use dreams in their world? And it just kind of sort of expanded my whole uh, kind of uh, idea of what the dreamscape could be. And I remember when I lived in Florida, this film came out called The Last Wave by Peter Weir. And I thought, oh, this is a surf movie. But it's not. It's, a, it's in Australia, and it's about the Australian native native indigenous people. And they, they talked about dream time, that the dream time is just as real as our waking time. And this just blew my mind away, where they said, like, well, we can navigate through the dream time, and we can see our ancestors, we can see our ancestral gods. Uh, and then we also create these dream maps, which help us navigate this kind of space. So this just kind of set set the basis for like a whole kind of like exploration and how we can use dreams, uh, as a design tool. And I think I started to like, I never got as far on this as I wanted to do. Eventually I'd like to do a book about it, but I started to ask uh, some local landscape architects do dreams affect their designs. And, uh, you know, like almost everybody that I asked said, yes. And part of that article is I'm trying to kind of show, Uh, How they, the process of how they use dreams in their designs, how that, how that, how that comes about. And then I looked at historically, the first really example that jumped out at me was how Michelangelo for the Laurentian steps, the Laurentian library in Florence, uh, the design for those steps came to him in a dream. And uh, if you look at that space, it's inside-outside building. The whole space fills up with the stairs, you know, the, ins- the outside of the buildings on the inside. It's a very, very surreal space, but it has that liquid form of dreams. And you look at the surrealists who were using dreams as a way of jolting the observer into like a kind of flash of consciousness. Uh, they really tried to create dreams in their, in their drawing spaces. Uh, Salvador Dali would fall asleep in front of his easel and wake up in the midst of a dream and directly paint it. Uh, Joseph Cornell, the master of the sort of landscape box, uh, would take naps in the afternoon and purposely wake up in the middle of a dream and jump up and go over and work on one of his box constructions. And if you look at his box constructions, they really kind of have that kind of uh, quality of the universe, you know, that dreamlike quality. And if you look at uh, Salvador Dali's paintings, they're really fascinating because what they do is, like our dreams, one thing flows into another, and in Salvador Dali's paintings—you think it's a door or a face or a giant rock—and you look again, it turns turns into an automobile or it turns into something else. Because in the in the dream dream world, everything is possible, you know, and uh, everything makes sense. And uh, you know, in our dreams, uh, you know, like they're they're a symbol of hope, uh, but they're like an incredible fertile area of design that um, I just think we've just sort of scratched the surface. And one of the things I tried to do in cartooning the landscape is come up with a way that we can use dreams in the design process. And I've asked my students this, and I might ask you this, but uh, when you were taking studio, did you have dreams about the designs you were working on in studio?
0: Yes. And it was funny. I, I was a little bit older than my classmates and, um, but I knew the value of. Uh, but I had a portrait studio for about twenty years before, and I always found that uh, if you had a problem or something, I take a cat nap. <laughs> yes, and uh, they thought I was kind of funny, but it, it was it really works. <laughs> and uh, oh, absolutely! Oh yeah, and yeah, wake up and it was like, or I would just take a good cat nap, and uh, I wake up and I like refreshed with like, oh, okay, I get it, and I could just solve whatever problem I was working on or come up with some of different way of doing it. And um, yeah, that's why I just uh, laughed at that book. I was like, oh, see, I told you guys I was right. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, and I think one of the things, one of the hurdles is to get people to um, uh, listen to their dreams. You know, it's kind of like that intuition, you know, the rational mind and the intuitive mind. I mean, you've had these intuitive, intuitive sparks and uh, your rational mind takes over. And I think um, what I'm, what I'm hoping to see is like, or what I'm hoping to accomplish with that particular uh, piece was that you should trust your dreams, you know, like they actually can be a design tool and a lot of people do it. It's something they don't like to talk about it. Uh, but I think many people do, um, you know, it's, it's really an important aspect. And I think one of the things I tried to come up with is some guide, some tips for designing by dreams. Uh, one is to like, you know, before you go to bed, Uh, You know, think about the design problem you want to kind of solve. Repeat that a few times before you go to bed, make sure you have a sketchbook next to your bed. And then also I found like, how do you remember your dreams? If if I'm having a really, really cool dream uh, and I'm coherent about it, I try to repeat it over and over and over again so I can kind of of place it in my mind and never forget about it. And then the other idea is uh, if you you can also lucid dream by, if they say, if you can look at your hands and feet, then you can kind of take over control of your dream, which could help you kind of get to the solutions of the problems you're kind of looking for. You know, it's kind of like a, the lucid dreaming ideas to take take control of your dreams and be able to kind of take that over. And then the other thing I think is important when you get up, immediately write your dream down uh, if if just parts of it, just outlines of it, but the other thing I learned, too, is the important thing is not just writing your dream down with those significant things, but make sure that you do it in order uh, that it happened, because that'll open up, that'll remember other things as you're as you're writing the dream, and that thing will expand. One of the things I try to do in my dreams is I'm trying to think spatially or artistically or look at ideas that uh, can become artworks or, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of surrealistic space of landscape. I think that that's important. So I also ask, you know, students, um, you know, like you've had dreams uh, that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. You know, there's some really powerful messages there. There are repeating dreams that everybody has, and repeating dreams they're trying to tell us something over and over again. Uh, so there, there, there's a whole level of dreams. But I think the dreams is kind of like a, like the the, the new frontier of design that I that I think is has incredible potential. And part of it is just getting over kind of our rational mind and kind of listening, listening to our intuition because design is magic. You know, it's not magic, but it is magic and dreams, dreams are that magical time. You know, it's a parallel reality. That's just as real as um, our waking
0: state. It just lets you get out of that left brain and let that right brain just uh, take over, take over. Yeah. In fact, it was interesting. I found uh, I was gifted. It was very nice. Some landscape architects uh, retired and um, found this old book I was going through and it had kind of a a similar exercise. uh, And except it wasn't like a dream state, but it was um, take something like ecology as what I did as an example. And you look across the room, at say like a lamp. And how can you make the lamp a metaphor for your ecology? And it talked about how you go through these steps, your left brain goes, you can't do that, and da-da-da. And then all of a sudden, it's like, snap. It's like, oh, I know how I can do that. And the right brain just takes it over. I was like, oh, there you go. It's your imagination.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of tr- trusting that, you know. It's kind of like when the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Um, you know, it's doing that for a reason. And all too often, we don't pay any attention. We don't pay any attention to that. Um,
0: One thing I want to ask you, though, uh, is you're talking about the seven lamps of landscape architecture and why are they important? Do you want me to list them or would you like to tell us about maybe one or two of your favorites?
1: Well, um, I think, I mean, the basis for that is, you know, John Ruskin, when he wrote the seven lamps of architecture, that was uh, kind of a a milestone, a floodgate of uh, kind of information. You know, like that was a big brainstorm. And one of the things I, I always worshipped worship that book, or like admired him, you know, for doing that. And because I think landscape architecture is so important, I was thinking, well, why as landscape architects, why don't we have seven lamps of landscape architecture, you know, like how can how can I relate that? And um, so that's how I kind of came up with using his basis of the seven lamps of architecture, you know, the world. Lamp of knowledge those were all kind of like metaphors for like different stages but i think one one that one one lamp that i think is really really cool is the lamp of prophecy you know one thing we do as landscape architects is we're prophesying we're going into the future and we're imagining how something is going to look i mean that's pretty magical right i mean you know like and we're bringing that back and then, trans, you know, making the unbelievable believable to our clients, you know. So you're projecting how a landscape, especially landscape architecture, that changes over time because it's such a dynamic thing that's growing and changing. You're having to go off into the future and look at that and bring it back and make the unbelievable believable, you know. So you have, we have this power of uh, kind of prophecy that I think is really, really cool. And then there's, then there's the lamp of time travel which I also think is pretty cool. We have the ability to go forward in time and go back to the beginning of time. There's that great image of uh, from Lawrence Halperin's book on um, kind of the RSVP cycles where he did the site analysis for Sea um, uh, Ranch. And he takes it all the way back to the Big Bang. So, like, we have that ability – you know, to kind of slide through time, we can, we can time travel back and forth because we have to kind of like part of the site analysis process is you have to go back in time and then come forwards and see what's the impacts of sites and then, then go way off into the future and see, see where that's going. And then the, the one, one I like is sort of the, the, uh, the lamp of healing. Uh, one of the things that we do as landscape architects that I think is really, really beautiful, it's pretty hard to screw up the landscape by planting a tree. And I think this idea of the lamp of healing, you know, is really important. We're healing the land. We're healers of the landscape, and that's we're like, you know, um, that's that's really powerful. What a great idea! You know, what a great thing! You know, instead of destroying the landscape, we're helping it along and moving it forward and creating new, you know, new healing landscapes. Bioremediation. You know, we're alchemists. You know, there's the element of alchemy in our landscape where the landscape is trans, taking pollutants, turning them into good things, taking the pollutants out of the air and cleaning the air, cleaning the soil. I think that's wonderful. And then I think the final lamp that I like the best is the lamp of enchantment, that the landscape is this place, it's sacred. It's this landscape of enchantment. Uh, like, what is it? You know, what is the genus loci? You know what are the hidden qualities of the landscape that we can't see you know the landscape when it's working right is mystical you've been in the woods by yourself and experience what is that that you feel you know what's that undefinable thing that's there that we don't know what it is everybody's felt that you know it's is it the gaia spirit you know what is what is that you know it's landscapes should be you know if we solve all of these sort of like fundamental problems of ecology and environment and, and, and all of those things the final thing should be it should be in a place of enchantment and transformation that when people come into it and they leave it they're they're changed you know or they teach they they get they get a glimmer of these hidden flows of nature or they have an ability to connect with nature in a in a different way you know it's kind of like perhaps you've experienced it being in the everglades when the sun comes up you know and the birds all kind of come alive i mean it's a it's a really transcendental thing. The landscape, art we're transcendentalists, you know, we're pantheists, it's pantheitic, you know, there's this hidden thing that we can connect our people that visit our landscapes to. So those are some of the things I, I, I like the seven lamps. I think it's, um, uh, I was pretty, I was pretty pleased with that.
0: Yeah. I like that. It's, just, it's important to, um, to keep in mind as uh, yeah, guideposts for, uh, developing small or or large landscapes or like you said even lots lots of ecological areas that uh, that need restoration and uh yeah i, I really enjoy the, the tropical hammocks down here they have a couple of parks and it's when it's quiet and you could just sit there and there's nobody around it's it's like uh it's uh, it's almost otherworldly because you know we live in such other urban environments uh now i just like to go back into the woods it's uh, i don't know it's uh it's a mystery
1: Oh, absolutely! It's one of the things I miss. Is you know the, the oak hammocks, the palmetto, palmetto pine, oak hammocks, and you know like the I can still smell that feeling, You know I, I miss the thunderstorms too. The negative ionization. You know that that happens right before a thunderstorm. So we don't quite have that out here in California. But it's one of the things I really grew to love in Florida.
0: I, I think that everybody should have at least some kind of an outdoor space to watch uh, thunderstorms safely. Of course, come I in. Yeah, I like it. Safely, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> we used to that. I used to a kid at my grandparents' house. We'd love to sit outside, and just before that storm comes in, you know, you got that little bit of energy, you know, um, that uh, anticipation.
1: Yeah, and they say that um, you know when negative is positive, that negative ionization apparently really sparks creativity. And I remember like one of the more enjoyable times of my life in in Florida was when I'd be up working late at night and it'd be right before, you know, especially nighttime. The nighttime thunderstorms would come in and, uh, you know, right before, you know, right before they would happen. Like you could really you can smell that ionization, you know, and I I found out years later that that's apparently something that really ignites uh, the creative process in a really cool way
0: hadn't heard that but yeah that that does make sense it's just uh just it's like electricity or literally i guess electricity but it's just uh yeah i can't i can't really describe it i, I don't think you should describe it maybe uh, no just at the to do. um well chip thank you so much for being here today i have really enjoyed this interview um can you uh and i know you've taken up a lot of your time could you tell our audience uh, what are you working on now
1: Oh, well, I've been teaching this class in sacred landscapes. And uh, one of the things that we did a couple years, uh, I mean, two years ago, was I had my students from my lecture come up with uh, four design principles uh, from each one of my lectures. And the second second pinups we had, the way the page was divided up, I looked at it and I said, hey, you know, these look like tarot cards. And I said, would you guys like to do a set of tarot cards for the class? And they just loved it. So one of the things this has sort of developed, Elizabeth Boltz and I are working on a book proposal right now to uh, create a set of tarot cards uh, where you'll divine design. The tarot cards are based on a lot of these kind of sacred principles of the landscape, for instance, like the genus loci, you know, the spirit of the place, the sacred grove. If you look at the vocabulary of landscape that we have, there's a sacredness to it. You know there's this kind of historical sacredness that goes back to the beginning of time the grotto the hammock um you know the the enchanted forest the fairies the uh you know fairy rings you know in you know enchanted landscapes so the idea is that we'll use this set of cards to kind of like uh, use it as a source of inspiration to kind of come up with landscapes and also like make a connection with the sacred so Uh, As far as the design process goes, when you're starting a project, you could have a, you know, do your own private tarot reading from these uh, cards, and that could help establish your program uh, to kind of, like, connect you back to these sort of sacred principles. And one of the things I think is interesting, I mean, this might sound, like, far out, but if you look at it, um, you know, design is magic. You know, can you describe the design process? You know, can you describe love? You know, like you really can't describe the creative process. So this, you know, maybe is a way of invoking the intuitive. Uh, and, you know, it, it kind of like really helps. So what we're really excited about this. I think it's going to be really, really neat. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it's in the developmental stages. We're just about finished with our book proposal. But um, I'm very excited about it because, it, to me, it's going to become a sort of a vocabulary of these sacred landscape principles that there, there are like hundreds and hundreds of them that go back to the beginning of time that I think I'm not sort of a Luddite, but I kind of think that we're kind of losing uh, our touch you know, with remote sensing and all of these kind of machine learning things that are removing us further and further away from the kind of the idea of the genus loci of the spirit of the place, that landscape has this sacred quality um, and that's what I'm kind of hoping to do with this uh, deck deck of tarot cards that we're creating is kind of bring us back to that connect us back to that kind of you know, pantheistic uh, kind of sense of the landscape that all-encompassing kind of um, feeling of nature the worship of nature uh, and'm I'm, so I'm very very excited about that and hopefully um, you will be around to have your cards read and see what see what we'll see what lies in the future for you in divine and
0: a okay, could divine design. Oh, I I would love that. Um, and you also, uh, I would go back to being just a little bit. You you're a professor at Berkeley.
1: That's right. Yeah, I'm a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning in the uh, College of Environmental Design at the University of California in Berkeley. That's a mouthful.
0: <laughs> That's a mouthful. And just just for our audience to know, you're going to be presenting at the San Diego. American Society of Landscape Architects conference, right?
1: Yes, really exciting. Uh, We're doing a watercolor sketch crawl. I think it's the Friday, the Friday, the beginning. I guess the opening session. We're really excited about that. We're going down uh, on the first week of June to kind of scout that out. And then Elizabeth Bolts and I are doing a workshop on divining design: how to use uh, the Tarot card for creating for sacred placemaking. Um, it's kind of our first foyer into that, but I'm really excited about that. I think that's going to be fun. That's, that'll also be one of the workshops on the Friday. So I hope uh, uh, you all can uh, come to one or two of those or both of those. I think they're both going to be like a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening today. And if you have any ideas for books, you can also contact me through the Florida chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. And stay tuned for more great interviews.